Please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It'll be on the screen. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed, dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Thanks be to God. Our holy God, we recognize that we are here because you are involved in our lives. You are involved in history. You are seated on the throne where you are surrounded by heavenly beings that worship you day and night forever and ever and ever. And we're here because your son has been crucified, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and he too is worshiped as the slain lamb. And your Holy Spirit continues to minister to us and to unfold your purposes in this world. And right now, Lord, give us a vision of you seated on the throne, the heavenly worship, and Lord, by your grace and because of the blood of Jesus, Lord, pull us into that now as we get a vision for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revival. That's a word that seems very far off. Something that might have happened in previous times in history, but in our modern world, could that even happen right now? Revival? I mean, after all, the church is in decline. It's going in the opposite direction of revival. How could this even happen? Revival seems to be a word that is so far off. Theologian J.I. Packer defines revival as God's quickening visitation of his people, touching their hearts and deepening his work of grace in their lives. So revival is a time when God visits his people and we get to experience in that moment what is constantly happening in heaven, the worship and transformative power being in the presence of God. Revival. Could that happen today? Even in a small measure, could it happen today? Many of you might know this, but as a reminder, there were reports in February of a revival breaking out on a college campus. Osbury University in Kentucky had all these reports coming from it that something was happening on their campus. A New York Times reporter called it 
Woodstock for Christians was the, the way that that reporter described a revival. The university itself was more reserved, calling the experience an outpouring. It was presumptuous to call it a revival from their perspective. But what happened was on February 8th, there was a scheduled, ordinary, normal chapel that was scheduled to end, and then what happened is that it kept going. Students wouldn't leave. They stayed there and prayed and confessed and came before the chapel at the front and threw their bodies on the ground to pursue God more and more and more. And the chapel just, although it was scheduled to stop, it just didn't stop. And not only did it not stop, it started to swell as people continued to gather, to, to pray, to sing, to seek God. This service continued on and on and on, days and days and days, weeks and weeks and weeks. And the outpouring that was happening here wasn't just contained to students. Eventually, it was reported around 50,000 visitors from outside of the campus, different states, different countries, visited this small college town and this small campus to experience what was going on, what they were seeing in the news and hearing about and even seeing clips of it on social media. Uh, we've been talking about this in our home with my kids, and they often ask, is that church service still going on? Uh, and you might be wondering that too. Is it still happening? Well, on February 24th, the leadership finally announced that we're going to wind this thing down. We're not going to do any more of these outpouring services. And from their perspective, it, it became a unmanageable. Like there's so many people that were coming that they just couldn't handle the logistics of it. But I also think there's something else going on. This was not the first time on this particular campus at Osbury University that something like this has happened before. It's happened throughout their history, so it was something that they were actually very familiar with. Uh, one of the other bigger times that this occurred on their campus when it was in the 1970s. And these sorts of things we know, if you read anything about church history, they happen throughout church history in equal or greater measure to what happened at Osbury University. But well, this was one of the first ones that's very odd in that it occurred in our modern era and that you could see clips of it from social media. And even from there, like you couldn't really feel the gravity of what they must have been experiencing in that space. It just looked so normal. But there were so many people there. There wasn't a seat to be had. And it was just swelling up with more and more people trying to encounter what was going on. And, but from our perspective, you were just looking at videos, it just seemed such a an ordinary thing that was happening in their chapel. So my question to you, saints of Trinity City Church, is can this sort of thing still happen today? I know you might be thinking that the right answer to give because you're in church is, yes, of course, pastor, it can happen today, but you would be a normal person to have a little bit of skepticism in your heart about it. Like, really? In the modern day, can something like this happen? That God descends in such a way to make his presence known and touch our hearts in such a way that we linger and want to be exposed to it for a longer period of time? Can that happen? So maybe it's helpful to move from, do you believe this sort of thing can still happen, to this question. Do you want it to happen? Is that the desire of your heart is to experiencing, uh, experience an outpouring or revival in this way where you have the Lord visit you in such a unique way that it transforms you? that it feels like you're actually getting caught up into the very thing that happens in heaven and, and occurs forever and ever and ever. 
And I think one of the steps to maybe get our hearts there is to gain a vision for this by peeking in to heaven and seeing the worship that happens there continuously through the eyes of John the Apostle. Revelation 4 and 5 are chapters of, of, of the book of the, Bi- of, of book of the Bible that gives us a glimpse of worship around God seated on the throne. And in these chapters, we're going to be invited in with the Apostle John to the room where it happens, where this is where God rules and the fullness of his glory is displayed and where he unfolds his plans through Jesus Christ. Christ just gave John messages for the seven church and now he gets a vision of what's happening in heaven even at this moment while we gather here. In terms of structures, there's two different scenes we're going to see in chapters 4 and 5 and both of them are followed by singing that is interpreting and telling us what is going on, what you see in this vision. So let's look at the first scene in chapter 4. One ver- verses 1 through 2 say, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone seated, seated at, on it. John goes through this door into a heavenly temple, and these scenes are mixing a bunch of different imagery from the Old Testament, from books like Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, where we get other glimpses into the throne room of God to see the fullness of a holy God, the fullness of his glory. And John sees someone on the throne, and he goes on to describe all these things that are happening around the throne, but he doesn't describe the one who is on the throne, which is intentional. Because there's so much in the scriptures when we get a glimpse of God's glory and holiness because to look on it with with, with just straight on with full eyes would be something that would not, uh, we couldn't comprehend it. Indeed, it would be dangerous. It's like enjoying the glory of the sun in the sky. You can appreciate the beauty of the sun by getting a glimpse of everything around it and the things it's shining on. But to look directly at it would damage your eyes. And so too, the glory of God is overwhelming enough by just getting a glimpse of it. And it's certainly dangerous to behold it for finite sinners like us. So what's going on around the throne? Look at verses 3, 5, and 6. And the one who sat there had the appearance, appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling the throne. Verse 5, And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and pearls of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne was one, uh, was, was there was what looked like a glass, uh, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Different jewels and a rainbow are encircling the throne, and they're being described by John, and this is about the multifaceted glory of God that he's seen. And like on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, from the throne comes flashes of lightning and a rumbling thunder, which are the sounds and sights of God's judgment. There's a sea of glass like crystal, as well as seven lamps describing this heavenly vision that's like a temple in the Old Testament. In other words, this heavenly version of of, of a temple is what he is seeing. It's the most majestic 
and beautiful place of worship you've ever seen. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of like just a space that you've been to that was just utterly majestic, like a sanctuary, a church that you were just blown away by the beauty of it. Well, John is being caught up into uh, the heavenly temple that is more majestic than anything we could have on the earth. The sea is an important theme throughout the book of Revelation because it represents chaos when it's moving and, and it's not calm. And it's also a place later in the book of Revelation where evil emerges from the sea. And here the picture is that of the sea being calm that is, is likely reflecting the heavenly perspective on things. The one who is on the throne is in control. As we noted in earlier sermons, the, the, the seven lamps represented in seven spirits, which is a symbolical way of describing the Holy Spirit. This is the fullness of the divine spirit that is also in this throne room. And a reminder that God rules and unfolds his purposes, his purposes through the Holy Spirit. So now John moves from describing these jewels and this rainbow and the beauty that surrounds the throne to looking at some pretty crazy beings that are also there. Look at verses 4, 6 through 8. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Verse 6. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered in eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was a lion, and the second was an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings." Day and night, they never stop singing. So the first you have these 24 thrones. And these thrones are around the throne. And they say that on these thrones sit elders. They're wearing white robes to symbolize purity or holiness. And they also wear crowns, which represent some type of royal status. It's unclear what these elders are. They're not really described in terms of this is what they are. They're only described as elders. Are they saints that are in heaven or are they heavenly beings? Most likely, these elders are heavenly beings because we learn in chapter 5 when we get there that they bring the prayers of God's people before the throne. and They function like these heavenly priests who represent God's people in some way. And likely the number 24 is reinforcing this point. In the scriptures, 12 is a big deal. You have the 12 tribes in the Old Testament that represent God's people and the 12 apostles in the New Testament that represent the church. And here you have 24, thus representing all of God's people throughout time. But not only do you have these heavenly beings called elders sitting on the throne, you have these four living creatures which are just, that's a wild description of something, isn't it? They have eyes all over their body. I mean, this is, this is what's so remarkable about these visions that John is having. It's just like, it's, 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 it's wild to picture it. Uh, one of my staff was asking me, are you going to put an image on the screen about it? And it's like, no. Like, I think it's scary enough to think about these critters in your head, right? There's eyes all over the body, multiple wings. It even says that there's a, an eye under the wing. Like, can you picture an eye in an armpit, right, of a heavenly being? I mean, this is just a wild vision. 
So what's going on here? What does, the, what does this imagery represent of like true heavenly beings, even if they don't look literally like this? That's the thing to be remembered. These, these images are pointing to something that's real and true. You have four living creatures. One looks like a lion, another an ox, one with a face like a man, and the fourth one like a flying eagle. And these characteristics likely represent the entire created order. That's what it's getting at. They have eyes all over their body and six wings, which highlights the vigilance of these beings. And they stand before the throne, and often later they'll lead worship of God, and even in later chapters they carry out the judgment of God on the earth. These, cre these creatures are mixing images from the Old Testament of beings called cherubim and seraphim, which are heavenly beings who show up throughout the scriptures. They show up in the book of Genesis because they guard the, the Garden of Eden from human beings coming back in. And they're pictured on as an artifact on top of this, this, this Ark of the Covenant, this sacred artifact in the Holy Temple in the Old Testament. And they also show up in God's throne room in Isaiah where the prophet gets a similar vision into the throne room of God. Now, before we see the response of songs to this scene, I want to pause and let this wild description of these heavenly beings just land on you as a very probably secular audience. I know you're all religious folk, but if you're like me, you're just thinking, this is wild. Like, what is happening here, right? And I want to remind you that although the vision is highly symbolic, it is pointing to something that is true and real. To be a Christian and to be a student of the Bible is to remind yourself that what we see here on earth is not all that there is to be seen. There is indeed a spiritual realm that is active and real. We do believe in heaven where not only God dwells, but heavenly beings are there. And not only are they in heaven, but the scriptures make it very clear that there are these times that they have interactions with us here on earth. This is something that the scriptures affirm. And throughout the book of Revelation, your secular sensibilities are going to be tested again and again and again because the reality from the, the heavenly perspective is that these things are real and they're active and it's something that we get to lean into throughout this book. Now let's check out the songs that respond in this first scene. All right, so you have this scene, glory radiating from the throne room in heaven, and this like heavenly entourage of God like surrounding his throne, and then you hear from that scene unceasing worship that goes on day and night with ever, without ever stopping. The four living creatures lead the song, and then 24 elders, these other heavenly beings, are participating. What are those songs? Well, here's the first track of the heavenly Spotify list, all right? Revelation 4.8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy means, this word means to be set apart for divine service, and God makes people and things holy, but he also is holy, but in a way that no one else can be. He's utterly set apart in his power and his authority as the Lord God Almighty. He is set apart because he's infinite as the one who was and is and is to come. The other song is, are you, wor you are worthy. This is the second song that erupts in verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, 
and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God is worthy of worship because he is the creator of everything. Everything exists due to God's will. God made all things, preserves all, all things, and sustains all things. And there is none like this God. None like him in glory and purity, dignity, majesty, and power. And he continues to sit on the throne where he rules over all. God is not taking a break from history. It is unfolding because he continues to rule. And the heavenly beings recognize this by falling before God and throwing their crowns to the ground, which in the ancient world is something that a king would do when in the presence of someone greater. You would throw your, king, your crown down. And here we have that happening before the king of kings. Before we get to chapter 4, I, wanted to, uh, I was minded in this scene of a reflection from a pastor on a similar scene in Isaiah 6 where the prophet again gets a glimpse of heaven and sees just a part of God's glory who is seated on the throne and he sees these seraphims flying around and they're all screaming holy and crying out holy, holy, holy. And he reminded us that these uh, seraphims functioned like guards in the ancient world and guards were there to protect the king. Guards stood before, like anybody just being able to go into the king's chamber or his throne room. That no, just nobody. If you're just the average person, you can't just walk out uh, uh, off the street into the into the king's chamber. So you had these guards protecting the king. But then he reminded us that that's not exactly what's going on, even though that's a symbol. Of what's going on? Because this is God. He doesn't need to be protected by anybody. So why are these heavenly guards there? And he reminded us the reality is, it's not to protect God, it's to protect us from just being able to walk into his awful holiness. Because we are sinners who need to be cleansed and saved in order to enter this throne room. And now we turn to the scene of the one who did just that. Look at Revelation 5 with me, the second scene of these chapters. Verses 1 through 4. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So God on the throne is holding a scroll or a book which represents his judgment and his plans. And the scroll has seven seals on it, which means that the seals need to be broken in order to both reveal and unfold God's plan. The angel functions as the spokesperson for God and asks, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer considers every nook and cranny of heaven and earth, and the answer is no one is worthy. No man or being has the authority or righteousness to unfold God's purposes, and so John weeps. Because if no one can open the scroll, then God's judgment and plan will not be carried out. The powers against God and the church will continue to terrorize God's world. But John's sadness is short. There's good news, Revelation 5, 5 through 7. 
Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So one of the divine beings tells John to look, and he looks and sees the line of Judah, the root of David, both phrases from the Old Testament talking about the Messiah, who's the one that God sends to conquer and to judge. A line is an image of power. No one would ever feel comfortable in, the, in a room with a line, and that's the point. Yet when John turns, he looks and doesn't see a lion, but he sees a lamb. We have a lion and a lamb. Sounds like the month of March, doesn't it, right? This, this comes in like a lion, goes out with the lamb. And unlike a lion, being in the room with a lamb is not a big deal. It's as pleasant as spring weather. But this lamb is one who is slain. This is a bloody lamb because of a sacrifice. Yet the lamb also has seven horns, and horns symbolize power, And seven means, again, that this lamb has full and complete power. The lamb has seven eyes, which symbolize his full and complete omniscience and sovereignty. The Holy Spirit shows up again, reminding us that the Holy Spirit carries out both God's plan and Christ's purposes of redemption in the world. This is the Holy Trinity within the throne room. So what's with the mixed images here? He's a lion and a lamb. Power and weakness. And that's the point. Christ is the one who powerfully conquers, but does so by laying down his life. This is strength through weakness and life through death that we hear about in the gospel message. It is the crucified Christ who defeated sin, death, and the powers of evil on the cross, and he is the one that walks up to the one on the throne and takes the scroll out of his right hand. you got to appreciate that scene right there, right? The only earthly analogy that I could probably come up with for like modern people is to think about, I thought about like, you know, like in a, a room of government, whether it's like a prime minister, president, whatever, and they have like that phone on the desk that only the president can pick up and like give orders from. And this scene is like, like, The president has the phone in his hand and then somebody comes up and just grabs it and takes it and starts dictating the orders. Not any Joe Schmo can do something like that, but that's the point. This is the worthy lamb who was slain, who raised from the dead, and he is worthy to take that authority because he shares it with God and he can unfold the purposes of God in this world. And so no wonder the the heavens again erupt into worship and all the heavenly beings are participating and they're lifting up the prayers of God's people that are also going up to the throne room, which we will later see these prayers are calling for justice and judgment. Revelation 5, 8 through 10 says, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God 
persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and, a pri and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. This is a new song that's celebrating God's plan being fulfilled by the slain lamb. Christ is worthy to take and unfold God's plan because he was crucified, and with his blood he redeems people from every tongue, tribe, and nation because the gospel does not favor one group. It is good news for all people around the globe. But the worship is not done. You'll note how the worship will continue to build. Verses 11 through 14, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and, all, and the elders, elders fell down and worshipped. Now it's not just the four creatures and the elders, but now John sees millions and millions of angels who join in the worship of the Lamb, giving him the same praise as the one who sits on the throne. And he's worthy to receive this praise. He's worthy of everything, power, wealth, wisdom, strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. And then the heavenly beings of millions and millions of angels and, and they, 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 they say that they praise him and everything that has breath now in heaven and in earth join in the praise of God and join these millions of angels and these heavenly beings and these creatures and everything that has breath in heaven and on earth it says all that is in them they worship the one on the throne and the lamb because to them be praise and honor and glory and power not just for one moment but forever and ever and ever. And at the very end of this scene, we hear the declaration of worship in heaven where they say, Amen, let it be. And can we get that declaration here at Trinity City Church? Can I get Amen? Do you want him to receive this praise and worship? Do you want to be caught up into that? Can I get Amen if that's what you want? Because that's what I read this. I'm just like, that's what I need in this broken world. I need to be touched by God. I need to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb who died for my sins and rose from the dead. I don't need more social media or more politics or more things of this world. I need heaven to come down and touch my soul and touch our soul and the soul of the church. That gets an amen in heaven as well, among, as, as, well as among the church. But let me go back to Osbury just to conclude. And I know you might be thinking, like, just end the sermon there, brother. Like, that was great. You had an amen, just end it there. Like, end it in heaven. Why come back down to this college campus? Why go back there, right? But that's kind of the point. We need to capture a glimpse of this vision here in an ordinary space like this. That's what we need. I remember reading an article about this revival from a Presbyterian pastor who also ministers in Kentucky, and he visited this revival or outpouring, whatever you want to call it, because he was cautiously curious. Like, is this thing for real? And he wanted to go check it out. 
And he walked away from that experience believing that it was real. And why? Well, let me summarize some of his thoughts. The first thing he noted about this revival at this college campus is that it was started and sustained by very ordinary, boring things that Christians do regularly. That's what did it. I remember watching the chapel. I was curious as a pastor. I'm like, I want to watch this chapel, see what what they did to kick the whole thing off. And it was so utterly normal, guys. It was students that are learning instruments and just playing. Like, they weren't like paid professionals. They were just new musicians leading the chapel as they always do. They had a guest preacher who spoke about the love of God. And like, I mean, as the kids say, the sermon was mid. It was okay. Like, it wasn't terrible, but I actually forgot most of it even to this day. Like, and I remember there was actually a report of him texting some of his friends, the speaker that kicked off this whole revival, and he texted people. He's like, I think I bombed the sermon. He felt really bad about it. He didn't think it was a very good message. But then that's what set it off. And the other thing that's so fascinating, I remember reading about this, because you hear about revivals is spreading on you know, social media, people are looking at it, and then you have all these like, Christian celebrities that they wanted to go there, and, you know, and they wanted to help, right? Probably with their own like, smartphones videotaping them the whole time, right? And so they show up to this thing with like, you know, these students and just normal folks that are still giving talks and still singing, and they're told, we're glad you're here. Take a seat. That's what they were told. You're not going to get on the stage. This is not for you. This is for the one we're focusing on. And we're just going to have some normal, ordinary Christian folks continue to lead us into the very presence of God. See, church, you don't have to think that it has to be something extraordinary and mind-blowing to call heaven down to earth. It can happen in a very ordinary and normal service just like this. The other thing that this pastor noted is that When he was there, he noted the weightiness in the room. You'll recall that uh, language from a previous sermon. That's how God's glory is often described as weight. He says, quote, far from revival hysteria, soberness and and being uh, solemn filled the chapel. When my family was finding our balcony seats, I noticed how careful and quiet everyone was intuitively being even my six-year-old son, there was a sense of not wanting to disturb the gravity of the moment. In addition, he noted that the focus was on prayer, singing, repentance, and conversions, and a laser focus on Christ. It was all about the one who was slain and died for us, a laser focused on Christ. So, raises the question, was this a revival? And the pastor concluded, well, we'll see. Revivals turn into transformation where we hear testimonies about an event decades from now where people came to Christ, new people entered into ministry maybe because of this. There will be reports of a new concern for the poor and the oppressed that would result from this and a new vision that people would have for the gospel and all of life. So that remains to be seen. Let's see if that happens. I pray that it does. But again, it comes back to these questions I opened with, and I want to close with those questions again. Do you believe, brothers and sisters, that this sort of thing can happen again? And maybe another question, depending on your answer, you can answer with amen. Do you, brothers and sisters, want this to happen again? Amen. I do too.